My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I've spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to the DTD Podcast. This week, man, I'm super excited. This guy is a legend in New York City, and I can't wait to talk to him about his career. Tonight in the studio, Ralph Friedman, who was stationed at the South Bronx Notorious 41st Precinct, known by its nickname Fort Apache. Friedman served during one of the city's most dire times, the 70s and 80s, when fiscal crisis, political disillusionment, and all-out-of-control welfare system and surging crime and drug use were just a few of the problems. This man has over 2,000 arrests, 100 off-duty arrests, 6,000 assists to his fellow officers, 15 shootings, 8 shot, and 4 killed. These are not the performance statistics of an entire NYPD unit. They're the record that makes Detective Second Grade Ralph Friedman a legend. Welcome to the show, my brother in blue, Ralph. How are you? I'm good. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Yeah. It's an honor. I am so excited to talk about this book. It starts and does not let up from when it starts until it ends. And I just... The, the sheer number of things that you've done is absolutely incredible to me. And there's a couple things that I want to cover tonight on the show. I want to talk about your family because I felt in reading the book, that is kind of the most important thing that has been in your life from the very beginning up until now. And some of the different things that have happened. I want to talk about Fort Apache because it was a crazy place. And then some of the just crazy things that happened to you. So I want to get started right now talking about your family and the importance of family to you. Now, your mom, Faye, uh, and your dad, David, uh, are very important in this book. They're brought up numerous times. Can you just talk about your mom and dad to me and how important they were to you? Well, they were uh, real blue-collar workers, and we were, you know, a tight family, and they kept us together, and they instilled certain values in me from the beginning uh, of my life and my brothers that, you know, stuck with us. You know, that was our upbringing, and, uh, you know, we were neighborhood kids. We went to the neighborhood schools, and we worked in the neighborhood stores, and it was was a tight-knit neighborhood also. You know, it was a very Irish, Italian, Jewish neighborhood in the Bronx. We were up on the Kingsbridge Fordham section. And it was uh, it was another time in history. You know, it was, uh, you know, we grew up during the 50s and the 60s. And it was, you know, a different America back then. And there were different values that I think are missing in today's world a lot, especially in the last couple of years. Well, let's talk about that. Uh, You say that it's a different time, and of course it was a different time. There were uh, different kinds of problems back then than there are now, but I don't disagree with you. One of the biggest things that I agree with you about of a different time is I think that the work of a law enforcement officer, a police officer, a metro police officer, whatever, used to be a very dignified and respected job. 
And I think in the past couple of years, especially, we've lost a lot of that luster. Uh, and and I'm wondering how we get that kind of stuff back. Well, we definitely lost it in the last few years. People forget. But I also think that the majority of people do respect the police and they are law-abiding citizens. It's what I call the, uh, the squeaky wheel effect. You know, you got a, a carriage with uh, four wheels. The one that squeaks the most gets the attention, the, the oil. And I think it's a small percentage of people that are cop haters and lawbreakers, but they're very loud and vocal, and the media picks up on this. Uh, but I think most, most decent people respect the police. It's a noble profession. It always was. It always will be. And uh, right now, this small, small amount of people are very verbal and get the attention. Well, let me ask you. Comparing the criminals from your days at Fort Apache, and, and they didn't get to be much worse criminals there, compared to criminals today, do you think there's a different kind of criminal, or do you think that an overview of it is it's just a criminal? It, it, they haven't changed their personalities. Maybe they've just changed their soapboxes or their ability to speak in public? Well, the uh, the criminals are the same. You know, there's violent criminals, there's drug dealing criminals. Uh, I think that they they just got uh, they know they can get away with stuff now. That it's not that they can walk over the police, but even if the police arrest them, they know that the DAs are not prosecuting like they used to. There's a different uh, uh, mentality in the DA's office, so they're not being prosecuted. Uh, like they should be. And then if they are prosecuted, you have judges who don't sentence them correctly. And if they do get sentenced, then parole boards let them out. I mean, right now, it's uh, stacked in the favor of the perpetrators. You know, all you ever hear is police accountability, but no one's screaming DA's accountability or judge's accountability or parole board accountabilities. I mean, they, the police do everything they can, and there's other steps in the justice ladder that have to be followed, or you're not going to get to the goal or the top. You know, and if these criminals today know that they can get away with certain things, uh, where there's a revolving door justice, which we sort of always had, but not as bad as today. Today, there's no bail reform, and, uh, you know, everything is... Uh, racial or political. And they're getting away with a lot of stuff. And, uh, you know, with the politics, another problem is that politicians are running the police departments, which is definitely the wrong way to go. Law enforcement should be ran from within by police bosses and commanders that have experience, knowledge, training, and know um, how it is on the streets. These politicians, they don't know what it's like to be a cop or to handle crime. You know, if they went into an alleyway in a ghetto area, they'd shit their pants. You know, they don't, they don't even understand what a police officer does. Let them try going in an alley or responding just to a family dispute or checking on a suspicious person at three in the morning in an alleyway by themselves. They can't do that kind of stuff. And they don't know what a cop does. Or what he faces. 
Well, let me ask you one thing that I, I feel like you left out. When you say that there's DA responsibility, there's judge responsibility, there's parole board responsibility. Accountability. There should be accountability. Uh, accountability. They responsibility, uh, but there's no thank accountability. You. Uh, accountability. But I think the one big one in there that we don't talk about a lot is the actual person or the criminal's accountability. It's a blame well, me and it's my fault. Excuse me. It's your fault that I'm doing the things that I'm doing. We've lost accountability on that. And I think at, at its core basis, that's a huge thing. Well, that also has to do with the upbringing. You know, like I said, in the 50s and 60s, we had a different kind of upbringing and family was tight and neighborhoods were tight and people, uh, all the people respected the police and the criminals feared the police. And what's missing today is the criminals don't fear the police. Because they don't have, they're not, you know, being held accountable. But of course, it's their fault to begin with. But they're smart enough to know that they could get away with it. I agree. So talking about family and and like I said, that seemed to me in your book was a big thing. I, I want to first talk about your dad. Um, you you have a huge fondness for your dad. And, and it doesn't just come out in one part of the book or one page. It comes out numerous times. And it was probably my, other than the exciting stories that happened, it was probably my favorite part of the book. Just you talking to your dad and the things. And I, I want to bring up uh, a couple of the things that happened. When you were a rookie officer, there was a giant snowstorm and you were working. Um, you were a couple blocks away from your dad uh, at the San Carlos Hotel. Uh, yes, they, he managed the hotel in Manhattan. At the time, I was in the police academy during that storm, and we were put out in the street to assist with other things. And uh, the storm was terrible. There was no buses or trains or taxis. You know, the city was really shut down. We were pretty far, but we were in the same borough of Manhattan. Uh, the police academy, we turned out of like 20th Street, and my father... The hotel that he managed was up on 50th Street. So it was a 30-block hike straight up. Right. Well, you decide with your buddies that you're working with after a couple hours of, uh, I think you say, freezing your ass off, uh, you decide yeah. to head up to the hotel. Now, there's a, a steak restaurant, a very nice steak restaurant that's connected to the house. And, and yes, the even without... Angus. Right. And even without going into that story, you talk about uh, your dad bringing home steaks from there and meat from there. But but I want to focus on the dinner there. So you come in and you've been told over and over while you're in the academy, you know, police don't take things Be on the up and up. Don't do this. So you come in. Your dad says, I'm going to get you guys dinner. You go next door. And he does this thing where he says, can't a father buy his son and his friends a, a dinner just right. to cover you guys? But he wanted to make sure that everyone was taken care of. And not only that, but he let you stay there that night. So if you can walk us through that, just how you felt, what was going on, and how you looked at your father in that. Well, I've always respected my father and loved my father. And I, I was very proud of my father. You know, he was a war veteran, you know, from World War II. He got shot in the war. And uh, he, uh, he had a knife made. Uh, from a famous knife company called the Wilkinson Sword Edge. It was very big back then. And he had a knife made in France from them, and he carried it in his boot. And when he got shot, 
He was fighting the enemy, which he wasn't scared of, but he was scared of the doc, United States doctors. And he got shot in the f uh, fleshy part of his calf. And he want, didn't want to go to the doctors. You know, he was scared that they were going to amputate and send them home. And that's what they did in the war back then. They were very fast to amputate arms and legs and send you back. So he was more scared of them. He took out this knife he had, and he dug out the bullet and continued to stay on the fighting line. I have that knife here. It has his name in it, and it's uh, like a bayonet, and I have it framed on my, uh, down in my house. But, uh, you know, I really respected my father. I knew he loved us and the way he brought us up. He also taught boxing in the, uh, in the service, and he tried to instill a little of that on us, which, you know, we got trained in the academy also with full contact boxing. And, you know, he was proud of me. You know, he always wanted me to go to college, but I stood up to him on that and didn't go. And he wound up getting me a good job with a moving company back in 1967. And I was doing very well. But then I took the police test out of uh, just out of nowhere with a couple of friends. It was a walk-in then. And I got into the police academy. The sad thing is he never saw me graduate because he died while I was in the academy, you know, and I was there. I spoke to him a couple of hours before and I was with him when he died, you know. Well, and I want to talk about that because that was my next point to bring up. Uh, going back to that meal, you say that, you know, he pulls you aside, says that he's got room. Uh, he's already made the beds up for you guys. He's already called your mother, said you won't be home uh, yeah. and, and just kind of gets everything in place. And on top of that, goes yeah, to bed. Yeah, he really took care of me and the guys that I brought up there. I brought up about six guys or so. Yeah, and, and, and goes to bed before you guys get there, so you just kind of do what you need to do. Uh, you say in the book that all these years later, you can still taste that meal. <laughs> well, I grew up on steak. I grew up on red meat. Uh, you know, you know, a lot of people say it's bad for you. Uh, thank God, so far I'm 73 now, and I... You know, don't have any heart problems or anything from the blood. I mean, from the uh, red meat. But uh, we grew up on red meat all the time. We always ate steaks and hamburgers and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, I, I still I still love steak. I still eat steaks. You know, I barbecue all summer. My wife cooks a few of them during the uh, winter. You know, I'm a steak and potatoes guy. Do you think there was something about that meal, though, that made it stick in your mind? Because you've had plenty of steaks throughout your life. Is there something special about that day and what your father oh, did well, that day? Oh, well, it was day? special because of the way my father took care of us. And it was a special uh, just being in the academy, being with my friends there that I brought up. And that it was a, a day that's known, you know, in, in sort of like New York history because it's how it shut down the city. You know, it was a, a, one of these big storms that shut everything down. You know? uh, I, I loved what you said about your father uh, at the end of that. You said, quite a guy, my father. Um, yeah, I've always felt that way. And then you go on to say the last time you spoke with him, um, he talked to you. And I thought it was really great what he said to you. He said, uh, be your own man. You lead a clean life and I'm proud of you. Don't be swayed by what others do. Think for yourself. And the next time that you're around him, your brother is waking you up out of bed with your mom screaming in the living room. 
Can you just walk me through that in your own words, other than what was in the book about that day? Well, and I, my father used to wait up for me when I'd go out on the weekends on any night, whatever night I went out, he'd wait up for me. You know, he liked to know we were home and safe, I guess, you know, and, uh, I'd come home, and I, I was a bodybuilder then. I'd come home, and I'd eat a, a whole pie with a quart of milk before I go to bed, you know, because I was burning that stuff up anyway. But we always have a talk of how my day went, you know, how his day went, how my day went. And, you know, then we went to bed. And next thing I know, my brother was waking me up, and my mother was crying and screaming. And I go, I go inside, and I see him laying there. And I was in the academy where we learned uh, – you know, mouth to mouth and uh, CPR. And I tried all that. It was too late. And while I was doing that, I told my mother to call 911 or my brother. I forgot exactly which one. But they called 911. And before they even hung up the phone, the police were there. You know, and that really impressed me about the police department uh, while I was in the academy. I was impressed with the police department to begin with, without the the how much um you know professionalism there is and how many different units and how they specialize in things but it, this was a sunday morning and the i we lived in a building on the seventh floor and we called 911 and the the police were there immediately and 911 was pretty new then actually i was there when they opened 911 which was june of 1968 so this was only about a year later, you know, it was like 19, just the beginning of 1970. So it was about a year and a few months later. And it was a new concept. And the emergency service unit, they must have been driving right by my building, in my neighborhood at this Sunday morning, because they were up there, you know, on the seventh floor, while the phone was in their hands still. And they came in with everything they could, you know, they carry certain things for uh, heart patients and stuff like that. But it was too late and they tried everything they could. And you know, that, that, that morning sticks in my mind, of course, you know, I lost my father, but um, I was very impressed with how the police department responded, how they treated us, how they tried to save my father. And uh, it was, uh, that was it, you know, how do you think that situation changed you? Uh, and what I mean by that is, I mean, you already had your goal. You're in the academy and stuff like that. But does it does it get you on that road even more like you want to help people? You want to do this now. You saw the ESU unit. You saw all the things that they how fast they got there. Does it does it kind of embolden your stance in the academy? Like, yeah, I chose the right career. This is what I want to do. Well, I did feel I chose the right career. I mean, I was very impressed. You know, when I was growing up, I had no um, no ambition to be a police officer. I had no family or friends that were police officers. I got a few tickets for driving, but I didn't even hold that against the police. I didn't even think of the police, to be honest with you. You know, I was going about doing my job which I enjoyed in my bodybuilding. And it just never, ever dawned on me about police work or a police career or anything. You know, it just wasn't even something in my life, not even thought of. Even though I got a ticket or two, I paid a ticket, and that was it. But uh, no real, not real any of, I had some uh, JD cards, like juvenile delinquent 
cards. I got picked up a couple of times for fighting, but it was fist fights. And the cops would bring me in to the station house, and I'd say, oh, I'm on the list, I'm on the list. And they would, you know, let me go. But uh, it, was, it was nothing with nothing, and not like today's fights with guns and knives and weapons and shooting and stabbing and stuff like that. It was, you know, just neighborhood fights that kids get into. They knew both parties. They let us both go. Um, but it just wasn't something that was ever in my head. But when I started in the academy, once I got called, I thought about it a lot because I thought it was a career that I could make advancements without a college education. But I was very impressed with the police department itself, with all these units and the specialization. It was like, it was like, a, it was a tremendous thing, you know, like I never saw such organization and uh, camaraderie and, um, you know, these people were really trying to, uh, you know, help people. And it was uh, a good feeling to be part of it. And then they impressed me, like I said, with the incident with my father. Right. You know, how they're there and like they weren't thinking of anything but helping, you know. Well, do you think that, you know, you never thinking about being a police officer until you, you know, actually start the academy and then you get really focused on it and think about it and stuff. Do you think that helped you become what you were? Uh, I mean, because let's talk about it. You're you're the most decorated detective ever. Um, and you you really kind of hit the ground running. Do you think that with you not having thought about that and and getting, I guess you would say, maybe disillusioned about what that kind of job would be, do you think that helped in your career? What helped in my career was when I got to the 41st Precinct, when I graduated the academy and got assigned to the 4-1. You know, it had a reputation. I was happy to go there because I knew that I'd be among where the action was. You know, you, you get to become a cop, you know, you're gung-ho, and you, you, you want to get to some place where you could be a cop, right? So I got sent to the 41st Precinct, and, you know, it was a crazy crazy busy house and what really changed me i guess was seeing these offices there were certain offices and you when you saw what they did every day you know day after day they were some guys that were so impressive and uh, i looked up to them and i said i just said to myself man i want to be like that someday you know i saw one guy give you a fast incident uh i was a rookie and this officer, he was a well-built guy, and it was in the summer, and, you know, he had a good build and tattoos, and he was a patrolling by himself. His name was George Wadicki, right? And someone told him about a burglary or something, so he, he chased some guys up to a rooftop, and it was a few blocks from the station house. And he comes out on the roof, right? And he's by himself, and gets up on the roof, and there was a guy... There were two guys he was after, and one guy was on top of the, like the roof room that you would come out of. So when he walked out, the guy jumped down on him and stabbed him in his trap, right, going down into his shoulder. The guy stabbed him, and he proceeded to beat these two guys to a pulp. And he actually dragged them into the precinct with the knife still sticking out of his trap. <laughs> And I said, oh, my God, this is, I mean, these are the kind of people that I look up to. 
There was another guy uh, who was in uniform, Stanley Gam, and every single day he was coming in with drug suspects with tons of heroin. It was just amazing. Uh, I later went on to become his partner, Stanley Gam. May you rest in peace. But these are the kind of guys I looked up to, and I just said, I want to be like that. You know, to me, they were like my superheroes. Well, I want to take kind of a uh, opposite approach to that. These guys that were your heroes. There was a story that stuck out to me in the book that uh, while you were on training, um, you made a lot of traffic stops with one of your training officers. Um, and then well, we didn't uh, have training officers. What's that? We didn't have training officers. The, the, the partner that you're riding with. Yeah, and uh, other rookie partners and some veteran partners. Right. Th this guy was a veteran, but you had made a lot of traffic stops with him. You, uh, oh, okay. Yeah, you, had, you had got called back to the station. Um, right. And as you're on your way back, you're, you're trying to figure out what it is. And he says, hold on to this money. You go back and... Um, they, in essence, fire this guy right then. Um, well, they or, arrested him. Yeah. And, and We were driving around. It wasn't my, you know, I was a rookie. So I didn't have a, a steady partner or a steady car. And what happens is after you work foot posts for a while, then you start what's called filling in. So this guy's partner took off. So I was working with him as a fill-in partner. And we started stopping cars. And... I would always take the passenger side to cover him, and he'd approach the driver, and then he'd come back, we'd get in the car and leave. Each time I noticed he wasn't writing a summons or anything, but I didn't know he was taking money at the time. And this was right after or during pretty much the Knapp Commission, which was a big, uh, big to-do back in the uh, 69 and 70. They were arresting hundreds of police officers for corruption and stuff. And it was a very bad time for police. And they were like cleaning out the department. And this guy was taking money, which I didn't know about. And uh, he tell we get this 10-2 to report to the station house. And he turns to me and he says, I said, what's that about? And he says, well, I think I'm getting arrested. <laughs> and I'm saying, well, I'm like, what? And uh, with that, he hands me some folded money. And he says, hold this for me. So, I mean, I, I was scared shitless. You know, I'm a rookie. You know, he's a veteran officer. I, I, I put the money in my wallet. I didn't take it out for like six months. And we went into the station house, and they told me, officer, go back on patrol. I, I didn't even drive the radio car yet. I didn't even know, know what to do. I didn't know where to go. But they just said, go, and they arrested him right there. What are you thinking? I mean, you're pretty new to the department. My head was spinning. You know, I'm thinking... Holy shit, I got this job and I thought I was going to be arrested the next, you know, you know, you see all these bosses there and, you know, different kind of bosses shields and stuff and they tell him they tell him give us your gun and shield officer to him and turn to me and say go back on patrol. I didn't even know where to go. I didn't even know how to drive the radio car yet. <laughs> so, you know, what did you do the I rest of the day? Get out of there. What did you do the rest of the shift, do you remember? I just drove around aimlessly. <laughs> You know, I'm, I'm my head spinning like, what the fuck just happened? So, you know, I, I think it's interesting with Fort Apache and with NYPD in general. Your 
your precinct was only two and a half square miles. Yeah, and, but it was all, you know, not projects. We had no projects, but we had all tenements, mm -hmm. walk-up tenements. And it was just teeming and teeming with people. But it's interesting to me that in, in a city like New York, that you have so much crime concentrated in an area that the precinct is only two and a half miles. I mean, that's... There's quite a few precincts uh, in New York like that, especially in the Bronx. And so when you do that, are, are you guys separated? Of course, you had your unit that you ended up going to. But do you guys have your own homicide? Do you have your own narcotics? Do you have everything built right into that precinct? Or is well, that feeding off homicide, somewhere else? Well, it goes back and forth. During my time, there were times that the precinct detective units handled homicides. And there were times when there were specialized units that, for the borough that handled homicides. It went back and forth. Sometimes they gave you the responsibility. Sometimes they made, you know, different bosses, different administrations change how the policy will work. I mean, all the detectives were capable of investigating a homicide, but sometimes they, some bosses wanted just a unit that only did that. Right. So can, can you talk about the, the level of crime that was going on. I mean, th this this place it that you worked Wild at. Wild West show. <laughs> That's what I was about to say. Yeah. I mean, this when place. When I got into uh, a radio car, and it was like a Friday or Saturday night, you would get the car, and this was amazing. On a 4 to 12 shift, you'd come in, get the car, and you would, the light and siren would be on, and you would take over the car, and you'd be backed up 20 or 30 jobs. I mean, it was, it's, it's like shoveling shit against the tide. It just never ends, and you can't catch up. You know, it was just that kind of volume of work in these ghetto precincts. So let me ask you, with that level of work, can you kind of talk about what's going on in that area of the city and in the city as a whole at that time that is um, – causing this to happen because there was a lot of different things going on a lot of geopolitical stuff going on can you talk about that and, well, and it how it a, affected it was a time of what they called urban blight and two different presidents came to the precinct area and said you know we're going to rebuild this and uh you know the city was broke the city was going broke wound up going broke in 1975 where they laid off police officers and stuff and you know you have this high volume of people and there was, drugs were all, like where I worked, when you worked in the 41st, it was all heroin. I really didn't see any other drug until I got to the North Bronx when I became a detective. But as a uniform cop and my, my plain clothes anti-crime work, we only saw heroin. It was people were nodding out in the streets and then they invented uh, the city, you know, invented methadone, which was the same thing. It was liquid heroin didn't do any better, and they were just, you know, mugging and robbing and burglarizing and stealing pipes out of buildings and stealing cars and, you know, burglarizing people just to get money for that next fix, and it kept the police very busy. I mean, these the officers in these kind of precincts, you know, you can get assigned to a precinct in New York City. New York City is composed of five boroughs, and Manhattan is the rich borough. And if you had some precinct, uh, precincts there, where it was like a country club. But then you had the, uh, the, the south end of Manhattan and the north end of Manhattan was bad. They, these offices worked. 
you know, and then you get to the outer boroughs like Brooklyn and the Bronx, then you got your real, real ghettos, and you just worked all the time. The amount of work you did, you did in one year, you did what's equivalent to other precincts that takes seven or eight years. Well, you go, if I'm correct, you go to anti-crime after only two years, right? No, it was much less. It was really about about 14, 15 months. Wow. So you go there and um, you kind of start to shine. I mean, you you shined well, in uniform. I was uniform. making a lot of arrests before that. That's what right. got me into anti-crime. Right. They saw, you know, my level of arrest record and the kind of collars I was bringing in. And uh, the anti-crime was like a little more of an elite unit. And you worked in plain clothes. And you blend it into the neighborhood. So now you're not making radio runs. You're not responding to radio runs only as a backup if officers needed it. But you, uh, you're supposed to follow leads on your own. You know, we didn't have um, computers then or cell phones or beepers. Not even, we just started getting radios. Uh, so we worked a different way. What they did was if there was a guy in a precinct and he would do, uh, get all the crime reports and pinpoint them on a map, just sticking pins in them. And then you start to see patterns. And then they would send anti-crime to blend into the area where people were getting mugged, let's say, from five to seven, where they're getting off at a certain train station, coming home from work. Uh, and they pinpoint the areas. Today, it's all done by computers. But this was like the beginning of this police strategies of finding where crimes are occurring, uh, what hours, what days, what locations. And we'd follow up on that. And we'd also follow suspicious people. Uh, we'd look for guns. We'd stop suspicious cars, stuff like that. You know, you were supposed to be working more on your own, not getting radio pickups. Well, let me ask you a question. In that... We talked about how it's only a two and a half mile radius. Now it's different from where I work. Uh, you have a much larger area for a division or for a headquarters unit or whatever. Uh, when you're working plain clothes and you're blending into the crowd, with it being such a small area, how do you stay fresh? How do you keep from being known? I guess you would have to be known and not be known to kind of move around. Well, once they see you and they get to know you, make a few collars in the area, they get to know you, but they, they can't see you when you're coming up on them. So you use different vehicles. And we used to use, uh, we borrowed cars from the pound. We used uh, cabs a lot. We borrow from cab companies. They would have, see, people respected the police and they would let us use vehicles. We used Con Ed trucks. We used uh, milk trucks. We would wear construction clothes. We dressed like the junkies did. Um, like we, we had to blend in. Sometimes we did a lot of rooftop observations or we'd use binoculars and work from a block or two away. And then when they saw us and already recognized us, we already saw the crime and it's too late. See where they stashed the guns or the drugs or if they committed a robbery or burglary. You know, so you have that uh, blending into the area. You know, a, a couple of things, and they would get to know our cause, and that's why we'd always switch them out. Right, right. Um, but we'd also go like on a construction site, 
and you put on a helmet and different clothes, and they're not even looking at you. You know, you just <laughs> right. blend in. If there's like five guys working on the road, you're just standing there moving the shovel back and forth like you're working too. And meanwhile, you're doing observations. Right. Well, in this anti-crime unit, um, you, you talk about a couple specific stories that I thought were interesting. That uh, one of them was the FBI was trying to work something, and they got their stuff taken, and they uh, call you in to to get these people. Now, what was interesting about the story was from inception of getting this mission and getting it done, it took you three hours to get their stuff back. So. <laughs> Can you walk well, us through that few, story? Uh, constitutional rules broken there. <laughs> but uh, our boss wanted stuff done, and he says, I don't care how you do it. And he picked up me and my partner, and he says, listen, I know you guys could do it. Get it done. I want." They ripped off. It wasn't the FBI. I think it was, the, uh, it was either DEA or ATF. And they lost their drug money and their guns. Oh, I had it written down as something. Yeah, I had it written down as the FBI that they were trying to do another story with a guy with an FBI agent that I worked on. And I wound up catching one of of the FBI's most wanted. But on this case, it was they took their gun and they I think it, it was I don't think it was the FBI. If I remember correctly, it was DEA or ATF, but they took their money and the and the gun. And they wanted, it had to come back, you know. And the big boss called us in, the captain. He said, uh, whatever you got to do, I want that gun and money back. You know. So. And there were a couple of rules. Uh, well, I guess the statute of limitations ran out, so I could say. Uh, and there were a few rules broken. I used to say they were bent, you know. Well, I guess the question to it is. No matter who it was, you guys are considered local. They're considered feds. They've got a lot of egg on their face whenever they well, can't get that's the what job they were done. Trying to avoid, they didn't want it to be reported to their bosses, and they didn't want it in the newspapers. So this had to be done immediately. And so, when you get this done and go back to them, what do they say? They were pretty thankful. They were very thankful because. Uh, actually, they screwed up, you know, and they needed the NYPD to bail them out. You know, uh, we got a nice letter, you know, letters of recommendation, you know, commendation from right. their supervisors and stuff. But it was, uh, like I said, it was something that didn't get to the high, real higher ups where they would have got hurt and it didn't make the newspaper. So there was an egg on their face. Well, let me ask you about some of your leadership because you've, you've talked about, um, some of the people these days that make decisions for the police and, and they don't know what cops do, but you, you mentioned Sarm Battaglia in the book and you said, he, John Battaglia. he said, you said that he was the strength of the anti-crime. He was a rock solid boss. Without and would always, yeah, always have your back and have an answer to whatever problem uh, might arise. Do you see that that's still around or has that kind of leadership maybe disappeared a little in the world? I'm sure there's some leadership like that around, but I think it's more rare. You know, the NYPD used to be a very, very tight-knit group, a lot of camaraderie. Um, I don't know if it's there like that today from the things I read and see. And 
you know, these cell phones and video, you know, certainly changed the job. You know, I, I to me personally, I don't think it changed the job for the better. I mean, I know a lot of times uh, cops get out of trouble because it comes up on the video that the perpetrator was lying about them. In those cases, it's good. But I think it, I think it more, it stops the police more than it helps the police because uh, you know, officers are being filmed when they get out of the car and go into a pizza store to buy a slice of pizza or get a coffee. They're being filmed every minute. And I'm sure that weighs on them. And in some instances, uh, might change how they act or react, actually. Uh, they don't want, you see, people that film this kind of stuff, you know, they'll let the cop get punched in the face and they don't film that. And when the cop punches back and defend himself, that they film. So it looks like the cop walks over to someone and punches him when the cop is really responding to being punched. But they don't put that in there or with editing today or whatever. But they don't even start the film from when the perpetrator or some asshole in the street starts with a police officer. They put when the officer reacts. So it looks like he's the bully or something. So, I, you know, I think video and cell phones had a very negative effect on the police department. You know, in my opinion, I think it stops police from, you know, guys, uh, you know, feeling like they're in a movie or something. You know, you got to watch how you look and how you respond and what you say. Uh, I think cops are second guessing themselves. You know, I think it's another one of the shackles or obstacles put in police officers way uh, from doing the job today from the way police work should be. So I guess the next question would be then. How do we get past that? How do we move past that? Because they're here to stay. Body cams. No, what we need is more liberal, more liberal politicians getting mugged or their families getting mugged or being a victim of a crime. So then they'll start to understand that they need the police. You know, then they want the police to be uh, proactive. You know, when you say that, though, you bring up a whole new set of problems. Uh, when you, well, and, and as much as, you know, you, you say that people don't understand and they don't until they see it in real life. I understand what you're saying, but that you brings know, up the people, the people in the public, even the decent people, they don't see the underbelly of society like a police officer does. Right. You know, we, when you call us, you're not calling us for to have a good time or to celebrate something, you're calling us because something bad in your life occurred, you know, or something traumatic or, you know, very bad. You know, we see the underbelly. Police officers see uh, what humans or subhumans could do to other humans. You know, they don't see the damage that people do to other people. You know, they don't see this. They sleep in their beds at night because they're up. They sleep peacefully because there are police officers out there willing to put themselves on the line. And they should be thankful that the, in this day and age and under the conditions that police officers work, that they, they should be thankful that there's men and women that want to do this job and actually still do it. And you know what? The police officers today will even defend these people that are cop haters. They'll still put them, themselves in the line of fire or bodily harm to protect their rights and protect their person. When you say that, though, <clears throat> and you say these people that still want to do it these days, 
What I always worry about now, I have 15 years on the job right now. What I worry about. Thank you for your service. <laughs> thank you. Uh, what I worry about, though, is I think I, I almost worry that we're going to reach a point where not enough people are going to want to do the job. I think we're getting we're very almost at that point now. I mean, I read. I'm very up on all the news. I, I watch the news all the time. I get the newspapers, and I talk to old guys all the time. And it's really, uh, you know, retirements are up, injuries are up, um, far, people, you know, the, the vaccine mandate is getting just everything that's going on. There is a shortage of police. It's not a desirable job. Uh, you know, people not even proud to say that they're police officers. They used to say there's something else if they're out in, uh, you know, other company. So we used to be proud. And, you know, decent people have to respect the police and criminals got to fear the police. That's how it's good. the system will work correctly. But we're at that point now where uh, recruitment is down tremendously and retirements are way up. You know, the thin blue line is getting very thin. Absolutely. And the public will be the ones that will suffer. You know, I've heard someone say sometimes after a while you get the police department that you deserve. Yep. A lot of, I, I almost, so I'm reading now though that a lot of these areas where they wanted to defund the police, now they want to refund the police. Now they want right. to fund the police. Right. And, and, you know, they're starting to see that they call for help and they're not getting the response in uh, the minutes that they're supposed to, that it's taking time, you know, and there's a shortage of police and there's service call time is going up. And when they really want the police, they need the police immediately. And they're starting to see a difference and they're starting to change their tune. Society can't function without police. Absolutely not. You know? my, my question to you would be, uh, with all of that, with all of the stuff that police officers have to do now, it's not just enforcing the laws. It's taking care of loud music, uh, just everything that Quality they do. Of life stuff. Absolutely. Do you think, from your opinion, from when you work the job and you see everything now, you keep up with it, do you think at some point that they've piled on too much for police officers to do to where – no, it's almost the muddied are the water. Very capable of doing the job and all the facets of the job. Okay, but they have to be backed up. They could do it. We've done it. They could do it. They're better trained today. Have better equipment. Uh, knowledgeable. They 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 could definitely do the job. They could do as much as you could put on them. But they have. They can't do it if they're not appreciated and not backed up. You know, you need support lines. You know, my career also, you know, I had a great career, but I couldn't have done it without great partners, good bosses, and great uh, backup officers and uniformed guys. I couldn't do it myself, you know? In talking about that, I want to talk about something that is a, it's a pretty much political hot button now, but you kind of opened the book with it. And I want to talk about the shooting that you did with, uh, you were in with Cal Unger. Right. What I want you to do first is walk us through the story of it. I'll insert kind of questions when I need to, but I, I want to focus on some stuff back then 
and now with the same kind of situation if it's happening in both those time frames. So if you can tell us a story about that. All right. Well, I was in court that day. I was I had to go to court on a case and Cal had to go to court on a case. And we both got out of court early. We got back to the precinct and Cal wasn't my regular partner, but the boss put us together. We we're in the same unit, but we weren't direct partners, but we went out and we went out together. I've worked with him before, you know, on fill-ins. He'd fill in with my team. I'd fill in with his team. You know, that's how we did it when the other partners were either off or out sick or on vacation or in court. So now they team us up together, and we go out on patrol in his car, his private vehicle. And we're patrolling for about an hour or so. And it was like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And we get a call. We, we hear a call over the radio which we're not supposed to respond to calls, but the uniform picked it up as a burglary in progress. And we backed them up, you know, because I told you that's common that we always back each other up and stuff. You're in, you know, it's a dangerous job and you back each other up. So we happened to get there before the police, the police radio car did, either because we drove a little faster or we were closer or both. And as we were getting there, the job escalated from a burglary in progress to a girl screaming for help. So that makes it sound like it's more like a home invasion, you know, a burglary with somebody home. And the girl was in immediate danger. So we proceeded into the building, and the radio car didn't get there yet. They were probably going to be there in another minute or so. So we head up, to, it was on the top floor. We get up there, and we see the door ajar. You know, it looked like the frame was broken. It was open about six inches. And we proceed into the apartment screaming police. And we hear the girl screaming. You know, we hear the girl screaming. And when we get into the apartment, it's pitch black. I mean, it was two in the afternoon, sunny day, but we couldn't see nothing. They had shades and sheets and drapes, everything over the windows. And it was pitch black. And then we learned later, when you step into the apartment, it was a big living room with a kitchen off to the left, a hallway going straight back to a bathroom, and a bedroom off to the right. So you sort of got the picture now. Right? And we hear the screams coming from the back. So we start to go in this hallway, which is about three feet wide, and we're proceeding to the back. And when we're three feet from that door, a guy jumps out of that doorway. It's still pitch black, and he's black, and he has no shirt on. So we still don't even see him, but he pops out of his door. He's three feet in front of us with walls all around us in this hallway. And he, he starts shooting at us. Right? So he, right away I see Cal get hit standing next to me. He gets hit like five times. And as he's going down, he's firing. And I open fire. And we're actually firing at the muzzle flash in front of us. Because basically that's all we can see. So we're, it's like strobe lighting in this hallway, and bullets, are, we're all firing bullets, we're up to about 15, 16 rounds, and the bullets are ricocheting all over the place. Cal took two more hits from ricochets, one was in his back and one was in a forearm, which they took out with a, when he got to the house, he had five direct hits, but they took out four, these two ricochets with a tweezer, you know, it was just under the skin that scars you up, tears you up a little but it didn't penetrate his torso like the other five bullets did. 
Now I see Cal go down, and this guy is now, as we're shooting, he's running towards us, closing the gap of this three feet. And I'm still firing, and the guy runs into me, and I, I sort of remember firing five rounds, and I'm carrying six in this gun, right? And he, he ran into me, and I grab him by his trap, because he had no shirt on. I just grabbed, and I grabbed his trap with my left hand, and he ran into me, and I had my gun pressed against him, and I fired in his chest, killing him right there. And uh, he had multiple hits also, but I was, uh, I didn't get hit, thank God. And being so, I was able to help Cal. But now the other units responded, but I picked up the radio and uh, radioed in that my partner was shot. So it brought, you know, dozens of units to the, uh, to the, uh, the spot. So we decided, um, you know, the officers that responded decided that the best and quickest way was to carry him down the stairs, not wait for an ambulance or anything. They carried him down to the radio car, but there were so many cars there, they couldn't even get out. The radio car that had him in there, because I had to stay at the scene and explain to supervisors and bosses what occurred, right? Plus, I still had a dead body there, and I also had the girl that was almost beaten up, beaten to death. Right, so they they radioed highway patrol, and they closed off every intersection to the hospital. So this way, even when you have a light and siren on and you're racing, you still have in your mind to be cautious, slow down a little. So they raced through every intersection like it was a speedway. They didn't have to even think because highway closed everything down. No traffic was moving. So they had a clear path to the hospital. And all these little things, like the officer's quick response, the officer's carrying him down, putting him in a radio car, blocking all intersections with highway, all these little things saved uh, seconds that might have added up to a couple of minutes that saved his life. And also the quick and great work of the doctors and nurses at Jacoby Hospital. So here's my questions from it. In that situation, in today, you go to the hospital. Uh, it's kind of chaotic there. Uh, your your partner of that day, Cal, sets a, a record. He made medical history. He got uh, Took 72 pints of blood in three hours. <laughs> yeah. That is like the doctors are working on him. You only hold, I think, about eight pints of blood, eight, nine maybe. <laughs> it's yeah. pouring out on the operating floor, and they're just pumping blood into him. It, it was an amazing thing. The police commissioner wound up giving medals of commendation to the doctors for saving his life and for the job they did. Well, what's interesting, though, is as this is all going on, they come to you and tell you somebody wants to talk to you. Yes. What happened, well, I stayed at the scene, and then after I told the supervisors and bosses what occurred, I went to the hospital, of course, like everybody else. Right. You know, and then they tell me someone wants to speak to me, you know, and... It was the mayor, Mayor Lindsay, who was the mayor at the time, and he took a helicopter and flew and landed it right in front of, uh, you know, the aviation unit of the police department, flew the mayor right to the front of the hospital, landed on Pelham Parkway in the Bronx to interview me before I held a news conference. He just wanted to make sure I was of sound mind and body. So I told him what happened. He was very sincere. I'll give him that. Uh, you know, asking about my partner or anything he could do. He was very sincere. He was 
sincere about it. And he told me, you know, go on the TV and tell the story as you told me. So my question would be, does that happen today? What's that? Does that happen today? That's my question. Well, I'm not sure they would let a police officer go on the air today. The super, a big boss would handle it, or um, probably a chief of the borough or chief of the department or the police commissioner himself. It would be very high-ranking officers. I, don't, I, I, I could probably say 99.9% they wouldn't let a police officer go on, especially uh, within hours of the, the occurrence. No, they would never do that today. Right. So the second never. part to that would be, when did we lose that and why did we lose that? Who better to tell the story than you? If you tell well, the truth, it never changes. That's true. But over the years, um, you know, I think I, like they wanted to question me, like the bosses questioned me and the mayor himself. Uh, I think they just lost confidence in police officers going up there. Some of them could have been shaken up. You know, different uh, police officers are just humans also, and the different ones can handle the situation a little Absolutely. different. You know, some of them could be depressed. Um, you know, it never depressed me about shooting someone or taking a life because I felt, you know, I look at the other side of the coin of it, maybe because uh, I don't know why. Maybe God made it that way, but I could handle it. And I look at it that I saved lives. I came out victorious. I saved my life or my partner's life or a civilian's life. You know, so it wasn't so much as taking a life. It was saving lives. And sometimes that's what you have to do. You know, that's what we're trained for. And, you know, sometimes it comes to that point. You know, for me, it came to that point quite a few times. But I did what I had to do. I did what I was trained to do. And thankfully, you know, I was able to stand up for it and do it, do what I had to do. But uh, they don't let police officers make these uh, uh, news conferences anymore, you know. Well, during this whole time, it kind of brings us into our next, you know, how you said that you felt confident in everything you did. This is uh, this is the guy that's doing that right there. Um, and, and uh, of course, if you're on that's YouTube. That's a dumb, good-looking guy there. <laughs> oh, it's me. <laughs> if you're on, uh, if you watch the video version, they should be able to see this picture. But the point that I want to bring up about this is as you're in this, you're, you're loving life. You're, you're having a great time at your job. You're quite the ladies man, but I want to talk about one girl in particular, uh, on a date that went horribly wrong for you. I had a few of them. Well, this one went, I think, a little worse than most do. Uh, her name was Lucy. Okay. Got it. So you're, you meet this girl. You think she's great. She tells you she wants to spend some time with you. Uh, you get a well, later rest. we were rest. spending time together. Right. You know, we were going out, but then it got to the point where now I was going to go up to her house. Okay. So, so we went out for quite a few dinners. It was now time for dessert. <laughs> okay. So you're supposed to go there. You get a late arrest. You don't show up um, because you have to take care of that. Walk us through this story because I think of all the stories that you tell in this book, this is the most crazy banana story I've ever heard <laughs> about what could possibly happen to one of the single guys out there. Well, I met this girl, and we, like I said, Lucy, and we 
we're dating for a while, you know, a few dates and stuff, and we're really hitting it off. And she was hot, you know. And uh, we got to the point where I'm going to go to a house, and I did make an arrest that night, and I got stuck with a lot of paperwork, and I just couldn't make it. You know, we didn't have cell phones back then, so I was calling a hard line from her house to the precinct, and I'm telling her I can't make it. And she's all upset, and she's going on and on with, well, I don't care if you come late or just come after you finish. And I knew it was taking me too long, and I had to work an, an earlier shift the next day, right? So I just couldn't make it. So the next day I'm out on patrol, and we get this 10-2 uh, forthwith. So I'm working with my partner. We look at each other, and we look at each other and say, like, what what did we do wrong now, you know? So we get called in. And we go upstairs to the squad office, and the boss is sitting there. I see the boss in the room, and he's sitting there with two suits, you know. So right away, you know, it goes to our mind, it's internal affairs, right? So the boss comes out, and he tells my partner, Timmy Kennedy, he says, all right, you go back downstairs. You go back out on patrol or get some other partners. <laughs> and he tells me to come in the office, right? So I go in there and uh, sit down. And now the guy has identified himself. One's a lieutenant, one's a detective, and they're from the intel division. That's part of intelligence division. And there's all different units in the intelligence division that handle all kinds of different things. And these guys, I guess, handle threats and stuff like that. But they start to proceed to tell me, uh, they start to ask me, do you know a girl named Lucy Santiago and stuff? And I said, uh, yeah. And now my head's starting to spin a little. I'm saying, how would they know my girlfriend's name, right? Then they say, uh, were you supposed to meet her last night? I said, yeah. And I'm, in my head, I'm saying, how the hell would they know this? And then they say, well, she was going to have you killed last night. There were two or three guys in her closet waiting <laughs> to shoot you. Now my fucking head is spinning. And I'm saying, what the fuck? I, I, I don't even know what to say, you know? And they proceed to tell me, that they have a CI, which is a confidential informant. Now, those guys give information to police, or anybody in the department. You know, everybody has their own CIs, uniform, plain clothes, detectives, bosses. Everybody has CIs that work with the department on every kind of case. And you, you judge your CI by the amount of good stuff he gives you. If he gives you 10 pieces of information and three or four or five of them are good, He's a decent CI. If he gives you 8, 9, or 10 out of 10, the guy's great. You know, they said they had a CI, and he was a great CI. He's given them every piece of information he gives them is good. So they had zero chance of uh, doubting what he says. So he said there's two or three guys in that closet, and they're going to kill Detective Friedman. And they had no doubt in their mind that this was true and good information. So we find out now, they tell me, and I'm saying, like, why? why? Uh, you know, and they say, well, you had an incident about eight months ago where you shot a couple of guys on a gun buy on a rooftop. I wound up shooting one guy and killing another guy. And they said this was her step stepbrother. And the whole thing was a setup to get you where you're off your guard and they could kill you. And like... I was just amazed. Never called her again. And that was it. <laughs>
So the, the guys that were on the the gun by that you had uh, you had shot, those were the guys that were when they were selling weapons. They were like down in the street firing it off in the street, right? Showing people. Well, no, not, I'll tell you how that story was. We were me and my partner were out uh, on patrol. We made a, a purse snatching uh, collar. Grabbed the guy for you know robbing someone on the street, and. We went into the precinct, and it was around the end of the tour. So I took the arrest, and my partner was going home. So I was in there processing the arrest, and a CI of mine came in. And he tells, and he was a good CI, a really good CI, like theirs was. So I understood, you know, what a good CI is. And they said, and the CI tells me, I got a guy selling me a gun. So I go into the boss, who was working at the time, and I tell him what I got. I told him my partner went home, and I'm processing an arrest, and we got this information. So he says, uh, well, I'll be your partner, the boss says. <clears throat> so the boss knew me and knew how I worked, and, you know, he was a good, a great boss. So he says, I'll work with you, and we'll make the arrest together. So I said, okay. So we get the CI in, and we talk to him and everything, and we set up a plan where he's going to go up on the roof. That's where he's supposed to meet him, and he's supposed to buy this gun. So... He said, uh, we, we tell him that when you get, we'll be watching you from somewhere. And when you get possession of the gun, then we'll move in. Figuring this is safer for everybody involved because the perpetrator won't have the gun. We like, you know, to some degree, you trust the CI. Figure he'll get the gun. He ain't going to use it on us. You know, so we get, you know, then we'll rush in and lock them both up. Right? So we, me and my partner, which is now my boss, uh, we decide we're going to go up on a roof. The plan is a few buildings down. We'll go in in the beginning of the block from the side where they can't see us, climb the fire escapes, go to the roof, and we'll watch. So we go up there first, and we get a good position. The CI goes. He goes up to the roof. And as soon as he gets up to the roof, uh, we see the plan is not going that well because the first thing we see is that there's two perpetrators instead of one. So that throws a little monkey wrench in it because we don't know who this other guy is. We don't know if he's armed, what's his position in this whole deal. And the next thing that goes wrong is it's not a handgun, but a 30-30 hunting rifle. Okay, so we figure we'll still try to stick to the plan where once RCI gets possession of the weapon, then we'll move in. Next thing that goes wrong is before the perpetrator is going to give him the gun. He wants to show him that the gun is operable. And he starts leaning over the roof with a hunting rifle and starts sniping. Firing shots off the roof into the public. So now we're like four or five roofs away. They're all connected. There's a small wall in between them that's like anywhere from two feet to three feet high. And you jump over them and all the roofs are connected. So right away now that he's sniping, we have no choice but to start uh, identifying ourselves and racing towards the perpetrator, which we do. And then he turns the rifle on us and fires, and we open up fire on him. Right away, I knew I hit him because it caught him, and I saw him like halfway turn around. Then my partner caught him. So he goes down. The CI is smart enough. He goes down. And the third guy... He disappears behind this, like, 
kiosk type of thing. It looks like a chimney coming up on the roof, right? So we can't even see him. So we race over there, and I start to go around this chimney, which is about seven, eight feet high, about three feet wide on each side, so I can't see the guy behind it, so I'm going slowly. Now, I emptied my gun on the first guy, hitting him once or twice. Well, actually, I hit him once, but I emptied my gun, and now I pull out a second gun. And I got it in my hand. I'm going to look for this guy. And I turn the corner, and he's right there to stab me in the head. You got the knife raised above his head with a downward, promotion, uh, downward motion, and he's going to stab me. My finger tightens on the trigger to shoot him. Before I could pull the trigger, I hear a shot. I didn't fire. My partner came up behind him and shot him in the back before he could stab me. So he goes down. And now the partner, my boss, screams, get the gun, get the gun. So we want to go back to the first guy, even though he's shot and down. You want to get the gun away from him, right? As far as you could. He already dropped it, but it, it was laying there. So I go proceed to go past the guy that he shot, and the guy springs back up with the knife. And I have the second gun, and I shoot him in the stomach, killing him right there. Then we go over and we get the gun away from the first guy and we rough up this, the other guy who's the CI to make him look like, you know, he's involved in this transaction also. So we cuff him up, get an ambulance for the shot guy. The other guy's dead laying there. And uh, this is the one that turns out to be the brother, stepbrother of this girl I'm dating eight months later. Now, you talk about it in the book a little bit, but I, I wanted to ask you about it where you say that um, with all your police instinct and everything that had kept you alive on the streets, you, you kind of wondered how this one slipped past you. Uh, I was probably thinking with the little head instead of the big head, <laughs> you know, but this was an off duty uh, romance type of thing. I didn't think any, I, there was no way I could have figured out it was connected. You know, I mean, you meet a girl, you start dating, everything's going good, you know, and then you're going to be uh, intimate with her. You're getting into a, an intimate location and, you, you know, how could you plan for that? You Absolutely. Know? I can't send an emergency service unit up to search her apartment before I go up there. You know, <laughs> it's just like, it's just something you don't plan for, you know. Does it change the way you date? <laughs> I, I, it probably did for a little while, but I don't know what I could do to change that. You know what I mean? Well, I, the, I can't give them a questionnaire say, did I kill any of your family members? You know? <laughs> but, <laughs> that probably wouldn't be a good thing to lead with. Yeah, it wouldn't be a good lead, you know? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and the reason I asked that is because a little bit later, we're going to get to your accident. And, and some things happened with some ladies while you're in the hospital. So I wanted to... <laughs> I wanted to ask if, if, you know, if dating stayed the same. One other thing I want to talk about, though, before we get to the car accident is working with your brother. And I thought this was a pretty cool part of the book where you're working with your brother who is a metro. Uh, he, he becomes a metro cop, correct? No, it's a transit cop. Transit cop. I'm sorry. Right. Uh, that was a different department up until 1995. Then they did what's called a merge. Giuliani put all the police, the three police departments to, as one. There was transit police, NYPD, and housing police. 
and he put it all under one. It's all under the NYPD now. But my brother, he worked from 74 to 97. So he did uh, most of his time, almost all his time in the transit police. The times I worked with my brother, it was always a fluke because we worked, we did some things off duty. <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> uh, the the couple of points that I want to make with that, uh, you said you felt a little different when you were working with your brother. Uh, there was some more things to to worry about. Um, with well, your you're working brother. with a family member, right? You know, it's uh, you know, it's on your mind. It's on your mind. But he was a good cop, uh, standalone cop himself. You know, he was a highly decorated transit cop, and you know, before he became a cop. I took him out on patrol with me a few times, you know, so he had a taste for it. And he was a very smart, intelligent, active police officer himself. But a few of the things we got involved in were very, very early on in his career. He was still a rookie a couple of times. Well, and, and to go back, not to beat a dead horse, but to go back to your dating life, a lot of the things that you guys did off duty were while you were on dates. Yeah, I, yeah, I did quite a few uh, on dates, you know, because I was always a police officer, twenty-four right. hours a day. Right. Uh, I lived, worked, and hung out in the same areas. You know, it wasn't like I worked in the Bronx and then went home to Long Island and hung out in Long Island or Westchester. You know, I was a Bronx guy. I grew up there. My friends, family were there. Everything I knew was the Bronx. I was in the Bronx all the time. And I was still living in the Bronx the whole time I was on the job. Um, you know, you, you know, you, I was a product of my environment, you know. So, uh, you know, you're running. And the way I looked when I went to different parts of the city, even if I left the Bronx, you know, I was muscular, tattooed. I wore dungarees and tank tops and uh, motorcycle boots. And I rode a motorcycle or race cars. And... I would always, people would come over to me and say, you want to buy guns, want to buy drugs, you know? <laughs> so it, it sort of was like shooting fish in a barrel too, you know? It was, I was always being approached. And I also had the, the luck, or you could say the unluck, to be in the right place at the right time or the wrong place at the right time. But I always happened to be where uh, things occurred, you know, shootings, homicides, robberies. I, I just, I don't know. I was just like a magnet for this stuff. Well, the two things with your brother that, that stuck out to me in the book were, one, the boxing match that you guys go to on a date, um, <laughs> and and a piece of equipment is lost for a few minutes uh, and then given back. And then um, something that you two aren't together at the time, but uh, your brother is actually shot uh, off duty. Right. But you come in to to help kind of track the people down. Um the boxing, I want to leave that one because I want people to read it in the book because it's it's really great just to hear the story, how everything happens, how it occurs. That there was a couple of minutes there that was really scary when I lost that piece of equipment. Yeah. Uh, that was very scary. That was more scary than the fights and some of the stuff I was in. Because really? I, I wouldn't want that on the street, you know? So – when your brother is shot off duty and it's, it's kind of a fluke how he shot off duty. Like it's a really weird story of how it happened. Um, if we can talk a little bit about that story and then when you're actually brought in, 
are you approaching this job different than the other jobs? Is it the same? Is there more fire in you? What's going no, on? Definitely there was more fire. In right. You. That's what got the whole thing going. But uh, what happened was he was off duty with his partner and they were hanging out in this cop bar. But it was also a lot of these cop bars are also hangouts for uh, gangsters and wannabes. And, you know, it was that kind of bar. Right. And uh, he had some words with someone at the bar because the guy was having some words with a bouncer there. And uh, I don't think he was dressed right or something like that. Something where, you know, he got loud with the bouncer. My brother stepped in to calm it down. He didn't like it. And when him and his partner left, they got into a car. My part, my brother was driving. And this guy was waiting for him in another car. And he pulled up alongside of him, going the opposite direction. So it was like driver next to driver. And he just stuck a gun out the window at my brother's head and fired. My brother was fast enough, seeing this gun being pulled up, that he lifted his arm uh, to block his head like this. And he caught the bullet in his arm here and went into the tricep. Otherwise, it would have shot him right in the head. It was this quick movement that saved his life probably right there. So anyway, he gets taken to the hospital by his partner and police responding units and stuff. And I get a call at my house late at night. It was like, I think it was around midnight or one in the morning. I know it was late. And I raced down there, right? And there's police all over the place. And my brother was in the transit police department at the time. And there's transit cops there. Uh, there's on-duty, off-duty, NYPD, bosses, everything. And I'm getting bits and pieces of the story. And some of the pieces that I get, they're telling me that the bounce, there was this bouncer there. And they said, well, he knows the guy, but he ain't telling us nothing. So I go over to him. I just walk over to him. I, t I say, who's the guy? He gives me some lip, and I knock him out right there. And the bosses went fucking crazy. They're saying, you could be arrested. You know, you knock the guy out. You punch him out. And anyway, it resulted in me getting the information I wanted, right? And now I, there was a lot of cops that like decided that they're going to help me which the bosses didn't want me even involved. But, you know, it was like a rogue group of cops from NYPD and transit because my brother was a well-liked guy. I was known, well-liked. And, you know, it was a different kind of job, let's say that, back then. So we hit, we got a license plate. It was in Long Island. We rushed out there. Uh, it belonged to a girl, but he didn't go back with the car. Uh, it was just registered in her name to that location. Uh, then we, we found out who he was. Now, over the course of a few days, we find out he's a half-ass wannabe wise guy. His father was a wise guy. And I started uh, zeroing in on his uh, business locations, his numbers, parlors, stuff like that, and started putting in intelligence reports. If they were feasible, I could go there. I would go there and bother them, you know, uh, bust them, and it got to the point where I was disrupting their business. And you know, the mob don't like people disrupting their business. So 
what were you, the precinct that was handling the shooting, the 43rd precinct in the Bronx, the detective unit gets a call from a lawyer and they make a deal that he will surrender on the condition that I stay three miles away from the precinct at the time. So of course we make the deal and he surrenders and he gets arrested. And then when he's got just a short note after that, while he's going to court, I'm sitting in on the court case, you know, and there's a first few rows on a certain side of the courtroom are reserved for police officers. And I'm sitting in there and his lawyer gets up before the judge and says, Your Honor, I would like to have that man over there removed from the courtroom because he's a known killer. So the judge looks as a killer. He looks over, he sees me sitting there with a shield on. He says, that's a detective with the NYPD. He says, yeah, but uh, it's his brother who was shot and he's killed perpetrators already and he uh, doesn't look happy sitting there, you know? So the judge uh, wouldn't grant him that. So I was able to sit through the trial. He wound up, you know, taking a plea before it went to actual trial. And he did, uh, I think like five years or so. I think he got five to seven or four to seven. Well, in in saying that, um, but when he heard I was after him yeah. and I was disrupting their business, they were the family was happy to surrender. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and with that though, you know, you're you're doing this at at um, kind of I don't want to say your own time, but you're putting in a lot of effort to go. But you had guys backing you up that didn't have to of do course, that. I can't. You can't do anything without backup. Right. And, you know, my bosses, you know, I had great bosses, too. You know, I always made my bosses look good and my bosses took care of me. You know, I was a detective in the detective squad for 10 years. I never wore a suit and tie. They let me dress the way I want, work my own hours. You know, if I had court, even the DAs let me come in on a phone call notice instead of changing my tour because I didn't like to work day tours. So instead of showing up at 8 o'clock, you know, the case ain't even going to be called up. So maybe after lunch, I had it with the DAs that you call me, I will be there in one hour. So, and my bosses would let me start my tour if, you know, I'd be switched to whenever they called me. If they called me at 12 o'clock because they're breaking for lunch, you're going to be in right after lunch. I'd be there at one o'clock and I'd start work at one o'clock. So I'd work like a one to nine instead of an eight to four and spend the whole day in court. Well, and, and like you said, you're you're doing it. You're detective second grade. You're on the fast pace to be detective first grade. And then Monday, August 1st, 1983 happens. Yep. Uh, I was already told I was getting promoted that year. There's a lot of promotions around uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas. And I was told I was getting promoted. Uh, there was really very little doubt about that. Um all my uh, evaluations were great. My record was great. And they told me I was being promoted. But now I went on a vacation, went down to Virginia Beach, right, by motorcycle. I just got back. So I was still, like, vibrating and stuff. And my partner was driving, Timmy Kennedy, which I did most of the driving. Not that this accident was his fault, but uh, he was driving. And we get a single 1013, which is a police officer calling for help. So we're racing there, and uh, we're in an unmarked car, and we were heading west, where we were going to get to a certain point and turn left going south. But before we could turn left to go south, 
a radio car, Mark radio car, coming from the north, heading south, T-boned me, hitting me right in the hip. As you can see from this picture that you have up there, I was sitting in the passenger seat. The whole side, you can see, went into my hip. The roof came down. The, the floor came up. If I had a seatbelt on, I would have been killed. But I was thrown underneath the dash and had to be cut out by the fire department. If you look very closely at that photo, you'll see how far the door is pushed in. And you'll see the seat is buckled up because the floor came up and the sides were crushed in. Uh, I would have been killed if I had a seatbelt on. But uh, every all four officers in the, uh, there were two officers in the uh, Mark radio car. They were both uh, went to the hospital. It was a female and a rookie driving. And me and my partner went to the hospital. They were all treated and released in about 12 hours. I wound up staying in the hospital two and a half, almost three months. And then I was in a wheelchair and it was a career ending accident for me. You I were... broke 23 bones, shattering my hip in 100 pieces, and I broke my pelvic left, right, upper, and lower. And you were actually in the car for two hours while they were trying to cut you out. And yeah. did you speak your? Did you spend your first week in the hospital unconscious? It was almost. Uh, well, I was only unconscious. They tell me for only about a minute or two. Then I went into shock, and I was talking to them the whole time, which I didn't remember anything about it. And then when I got to the hospital, due to all the uh, broken bones and everything and the pain, they put, kept me on drugs that was so hard. I was knocked out of it for two weeks. Okay. So that's what I want to talk about. Whenever you wake up, I, I said earlier when I was talking about your dating life, um, word gets around that you're in this accident, that you're in the hospital, and you wake up to um, a lot of women encircling your bed. Yeah, there was a time, one time I was getting a little better, you know, they weren't using the drugs all the time. It was, and it was in the beginning, probably around the third week or so, and I wake up and I see all these girls that I'm dating all around the bed at the same time, right? And I said, oh man, this was really dangerous. I, I faked like I passed out again. See, I couldn't even deal with it, you know? So I made like I passed out again, and then next time I opened my eyes, they were gone. But, uh, it's funny you say that because, uh, well, two things. First, I'm still with one of those girls. I'm married uh, to my wife. Yep. And she's still here 38 years later. And another thing, uh, over the course of the years, you know, I did write a book and I did uh, have a TV series. And at one point, my agent, we were talking about doing a feature film and we were being interviewed by a few people. And it didn't work out due to financial reasons. But with these one guys that we were getting into solid talks with, they wanted to open the movie with the scene being the hospital and all these girls around the bed. There was about six or seven girls, you know, and they wanted to open the movie with that scene. You know? Well, and the, the book I wrote, by the way, is Street Warrior, which you have up on your screen there, and it's uh, available on Amazon. And the TV series is called Street Justice, the Bronx, which is also available on Amazon. And uh, I have a website, too, for your viewers to go to, if you like, is BronxStreetWarrior.com. Uh, a couple more things about your hospital. Um, you, you were there for a long time. You got bed sores, phlebitis, pneumonia, pneumonia. staph infections. 
and you know, two months earlier, you say you were lifting weights. Now you couldn't even walk down the hall. Uh, I couldn't even get out of bed. I mean, it, it was a terrible experience. Thank God I pulled through it. And pretty much because I had great support from friends, co-workers, and my union, you know, the Detectives Endowment Association and the police department. I mean, uh, everything was taken care of. I was treated absolutely great. And uh, all I had to concentrate on was getting my health back and, you know, getting my body back to some kind of order again, you know, getting in shape. But, I mean, I had tremendous support from family, friends, my partners, the, the department and the union. Well, is it true that your mother and brother visited every day and... And, and so did this one girl. Uh, the other Grace. girl faded out. You know, Grace, she uh, came every day that I was there. The other girls, you know, they saw I was in bad shape. The prognosis wasn't so good. <laughs> and uh, they all faded out in a couple of weeks. They, they hedged gone. their bets. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the NYPD even um, arranged for your mother to have transportation back and forth? She had a car at her beck and call all the time. Grace had a, a car every night to go home because she would work all day, visit me, and then go home. She did this triangle all the time. So in the morning she went to work and then she'd come to the hospital and the police would take her home every night. And my mother had a car to go to the hospital and back. Uh, since I was in a hospital where I, where I worked, there were a lot of threats on my life. And the police department from day one gave me 24 hour a day protection. So I had a police officer with me every single minute, which was very reassuring. You know, it was always someone there. I didn't really sleep much, so I'm up 24 hours a day. And having somebody by your side uh, is a big help in uh, helping you recover. And then when I got out, the emergency service unit took me home in their ambulance. They gave me the crutches, they gave me a wheelchair. And then the detectives union that I was a member of gave me uh, a maid and chauffeur to, uh, six hours a day, five days a week for an additional three months. And all this stuff was very helpful in my recovery. Absolutely. You know, plus, you know, my bills are being taken care of. I'm getting paid. And all I had to concentrate was on getting my body back. So when are you told that you have to retire? Well, pretty much when I was in the hospital, they were. Uh, you see, you, you have your doctors in the hospital, but the police department also sends over their specialists. They're known as police surgeons. And they get involved a little, and they also advise you. And they more or less told me, you know, uh, you should think, uh, think about, you know, you're going to have to retire due to your injuries because I didn't get a new hip. I didn't get any surgeries or stitches or nothing. I had a lot of muscle on me, and it acted as a shock absorber. And all of my bones broke, but nothing moved. So I laid in traction for three months uh, until I healed up. And the only thing they were concerned about was the hip, and because it was so it was shattered and in a hundred pieces, but not one piece fell out into the socket. It sort of healed up, and they said you might last two years, or you might last twenty. Meanwhile, I'm going on 38 now without getting a hip replacement, which I also cut out a lot of things. I used to be a very big jogger uh, and stuff like that. I had to cut out racquetball 
And, uh, you know, I don't, uh, you know, I don't do really long walking or anything. Like I can't, to this day, 38 years later, I can't even sleep on that side, you know. I mean, in an emergency, I could probably run for maybe a block, but I'd be a mess. But I'm, I'm not capable of doing police work as far as the physical part of it. Right. Because of those injuries. So they retired me. And while I was laying there, a lot of people always ask, how did you feel about this transition? But the transition, transition, I really didn't think about that as much at the time. My main thing, I mean, I miss the job every minute. I still miss it today, even though it's not the same job. But my main goal was just thinking about getting my body back, you know. And then I was laying there and I'm realizing, you know, uh, I'm like 34 years old and the criminals I'm, I'm going after are getting younger and younger. They have guns, you know. 34, you know, you're starting to get a little old for police work. You know, it's like almost like a boxer. You get to a certain age, which is young, but not for that sport. You know, and police work is definitely a young man or young woman's job. You know, you got to be in shape. You got to be in young. You got to be uh, have endurance and strength. And, you know, uh, these injuries certainly put me uh, out of that uh, condition. So uh, 13 years total, correct? 14. 14. And two years as a trainee of being underage. Right. All of that, I say that to say this, that room is a lot for that many years. Yes. Yeah. It's, uh, it's my office, then police museum room, you know, which we're in right now. And it has a lot of my awards on there and, uh, um, a lot of memories of my career. You know, there's newspaper clippings, magazine covers, uh, awards, commendations, stuff like that. Now, is it true that that room took a year to finish? Oh, yeah. A friend of mine did it, uh, Billy Butterfield. He, he's a, a master craftsman at woodworking and, and everything, actually. But he built this room, the lighting, the, the, the coffered ceiling, the walls. All the walls are done in three-quarter inch tongue and groove flooring and it's a masterpiece of a room he built showcases which you just see on the left there uh he did a tremendous job and it's uh, an impressive room thanks to him with all the stuff that's hanging on the wall is would you say this is the most important one well that's three of my top medals um you know, that's the Combat Cross that was awarded to me for one of my shootings. The other one is the Honor Legion Award on the left. And on the right is uh, I was put in for uh, the Washington, D.C. Distinguished Medal, uh, which I was submitted among a lot of other cops from all over the country. And I got that award. I want to show one other thing just so people understand because everyone's seen the New York badges because you guys wear them different with your awards. I think you guys wear them well, different. Well, every department has different awards and insignias for uh, certain police work and commendations. Right. Every department, every city. A absolutely. I think you guys wear yours different than everybody else, though, with them stacked on top of each other. Uh, we wear ours, yeah. uh, you know, uh, kind we of. We call a them bars. Right, right to left are our bars and stuff, but you guys right. stack them up. And I just want to show, 
to everyone that's watching this, that's your badge right there. Yes. And some of them equal more than one. Like the first one is 115 of those medals. And, and what medal See, is a, that? a number in the middle. It signifies how many of that medal that you received. And so what is that medal for? Well, that's the lowest of the medals. That's the uh, uh, excellent police. It's called an EPD, excellent police work. Um, and that's for like uh, if you spotted a guy with a gun and you followed right. up on it and you caught him or you, and you disarmed him. Uh, there's certain medals for certain different types of action that you would take that are out of the ordinary or put your life on the line. The higher you go, the higher the medal. Absolutely. So in, in saying all that, let's get to your life after retirement. You wrote a book. You had a TV show. They TV talked about series, making yeah. a movie. Uh, let's talk about all that stuff. Now, this book is absolutely fantastic, Ralph. I, I loved it. it it's Thank you. I want to thank uh, my co-writer on that, who was a New York City cop also. Uh, worked in the same area I did, but he rose to the rank of lieutenant, Pat Piccarelli. Uh, I mean, he was totally instrumental in getting that book uh, written and published on my co-writer, and he, he was great, you know, working with... And here's an ironic thing about that. Uh, I'm very good friends with Pat, and he wrote that book. We started working on it, like, probably in, in uh, 2015, because it was published in 2017, until his day, till now, we still never met in person. We talk on the phone all the time. We were doing the book. We spoke, I can't even tell you how many times a day, and we did it by email and telephone. We wow. still have never met face-to-face. -face. Wow. Well, the, yeah. the, like I said, but the book is... we got very close, and, uh, you know, he knows everything about my career. Yeah. Well, you know, this book starts... I mean, it starts right off the bat with action and getting into your life story, and it doesn't let up until the very end. It's well, absolutely... He definitely did a great job. There's no yeah. doubt about it. I met him through a mutual friend on Facebook. He was looking to do a cop book at the time. He wrote a few other books that were great because once I got to know him, he mailed me some books. I read them. I loved his style of writing, and I, I don't think anybody could have done a better job. Well, you can get it on Amazon, as you said before, on paperback, on Kindle. It's on audiobook uh, if, if you do the Audible. Um, and, of course, you can get it at any of the bookstores. Let's talk about your TV show, too. Now, you sent me all of these episodes when we first started talking, Street Justice, The Bronx. Yes. Um, yes. Fantastic. That was a fluke how I got that. Um, a, there was some advanced publicity about the book got out on the streets and it got published in a paper and a girl going to work, I forgot if she was on the train or the bus, but she read the article and she happened to be a producer. So she went into work and told her super, her bosses, man, we got to reach out to this guy and do something. And, uh, she was great. She wound up being my main producer and, uh, we got to do, uh, one full season, six one hour shows. And we really didn't get a second season for a couple of reasons. Main reason being how the turn of the tide went with the uh, anti-police atmosphere that was out there. That sort of hurt it a lot. And uh, 
But the show was very good. They did it justice. The act that it played me was great. I did, was the host. You know, I talk and you see me through the show. Yeah, it, I was going to tell you, the guy that plays you is is fantastic in it. Uh, and, and it's really good. What I really enjoyed about it was, because I'm a big documentary fan, uh, I love how the show mixes together both old footage and showing what it looked like there. That and was the news very reports. hard to get that footage because back then, uh, that's actual footage from the time that I was in the streets. And back then, they didn't have videos or cell phones or nothing. The only people that had it was like Columbia Pictures or something like that. you know. And they had to rent that footage. It was like something like thirty-five or thirty-six hundred dollars a minute, and it's sprinkled throughout the whole show. Yeah, it's very great though. It, it gives it a very uh, visceral feel by seeing the actual video from there. But like you said, the guy that played you is great. It it is almost part documentary, part um, acting, and you know playing out the scenes and stuff. But there's a lot of stuff intermixed with each other, which makes it super enjoyable and you can just blow through the episodes i mean when you sit down you don't want to finish them now it's uh, on a lot of places you can watch it on hulu you can watch it on youtube tv sling tv discovery plus amazon prime video philo youtube google play apple tv voodoo uh it, it's in a ton of places and it's definitely definitely worth uh checking out because if you want to see and get more of a like I said, visceral feel for your career. This is the way to see it. Uh, definitely, though, you cannot miss out on the book. The book is absolutely fantastic. And then if people if people go to your website, bronxstreetwarrior.com, uh, it blew me away. You have so many pictures and so much history and, and news articles and things about everything that was happening. If people want to know what you had for dinner last night. I'm sure they can find it on that website, but it's... And we're it, always adding to it. There's always, uh, you know, interviews and shows and uh, things I'm doing are added to it. It just takes a little time because my webmaster is very busy. But uh, we're always adding to it, like we're going to add your this interview to it too eventually. Well, that, that'll be great. Um, and when you go there and you see it, I mean, it has everything that, that, that people would want to know. And it's almost a quasi-police museum in there with all the articles and the magazine cutouts and all that kind of stuff that people can see. And then they can see kind of your personal life. You talk about the cars that you have, the dogs that you have, all kinds of stuff. So people can get to really know you. And if you mix all three of those together, the book, the TV show, and that website, it's, it's like they knew you your whole life well that's that was the purpose of it you know try to get it out there uh show police and law enforcement in a good light uh you know it's all about supporting the police showing them in a good light and uh you know that's what we're trying to do i'm well, very proud of my time with the police department i'm very proud of uh the partners i've had um I had, uh, you know, so many good partners. I mean, a limited amount, but they were very, I had the best of the best. And in plain clothes, you know, my best partner was uh, Lester Rudnick. He was, it was just fun to work with. And as a detective, Timmy Kennedy was my best partner without a doubt. And it was a fun job, even though we spent a lot of time doing dangerous things. Our lives were on the line, but I always had a partner that I knew had my back. And he knew I had his back and made the job enjoyable. It was, I, I, I feel funny even saying it was a job. It was an adventure. 
You know, it was enjoyable, yet it was dangerous, yet enjoyable. And it was an adventure. Every day you go to work, it was something different. And that's what I loved about police work. Well, I always like to equate it to you have a front row ticket to the greatest show on earth. Show in the world. Yeah. That's right. Uh, you know, and, and by the way, if you want to know who those guys, what they look like that he's talking about, if you go to the website, they're on there. Uh, one of the very yep. front pages on there, it shows who they are. So guys, if you want to check more of him out, you also have an Instagram, uh, and on Instagram, you're at Brock, uh, at Bronx street warrior. Um, yeah, I don't do too much on, uh, Instagram. I have somebody running. I'm not too familiar. I'm not one of these tech guys. <laughs> You know, I have a guy who does my uh, website, who's you know much more on top of it. But I'm not on, I'm not really familiar with the Instagram. I, I don't even know how to get on it myself. Well, well, uh, they're they're taking care of it. So if you want to check him okay, out more, good. and it has <laughs> yeah. connections to your website on there too that people can find out. So let's go down real quick again, guys. If you want more of Ralph and you want to learn more about him, the biggest one is www.bronxstreetwarrior.com. That's where you can find him. You can find him on Instagram at Bronx Street Warrior that has a connection to that website. Please, please go check out his book. It's absolutely fantastic biograph biography of a policeman in very tumultuous times in new york city it's called street warrior and it talks about nypd's most decorated detective also don't forget to check out the show street justice the bronx you can find it almost anywhere like we said on youtube most of the streaming services have it and you can buy it on a season basis or by an episode basis but you can definitely find out more about Ralph. Ralph, thank you so much for being on the show. It was an thank absolute honor to meet you and to just talk about your career. Guys, if you want more of me, you can find me on Instagram at the DTD underscore podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast, and you can find all of these conversations in video version on YouTube at the DTD podcast. Remember guys, Every week you come here because the best stories are true and I give them to you. That's going to be the show for tonight. That's Ralph. I'm DJ. This has been it. Make sure you go check this man out. We'll catch you on the next one. We're thanks out of here. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks for having me and thanks to your listeners for wanting to hear about it. Well, thank you so much. We'll catch you guys on the next one. See you later.